We live in a day where people have adopted church growth strategies. We've gone to 20-minute preaching in evangelical churches, and most of it is not expository in nature where you actually need a Bible to follow the sermon. That used to be typical in evangelical churches. Now it's exceptional. And it has put us in a pickle. And now things are gray, and people don't know what's right, what's wrong. There's really no gray in Scripture. There's contrast all the way through Scripture, beginning in the first book of the Bible. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three and the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Staying the Course. Over the last two days, we have seen Jude's distress about apostasy and his description of apostasy. And today, by God's grace, Pastor Carl will exposit Jude 17 as we study Jude's defense against apostasy. We will see that the best defense against false doctrine is sound biblical doctrine. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Verse 10, But these men, these apostates, revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct. Only animals have instinct. He's comparing them to animals. God gave us free will. But they're like animals, things which they know by instinct. Like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Jesus says they don't even understand the things they say they believe. Verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Baron and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So to help us to understand these, he gives us three illustrations from three Old Testament people, a farmer, a prophet, and a prince of Israel. So think your way through it because it touches every segment of society, prophets, princes, princes, and so to speak, common people. First, he describes those who pervert the gospel. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Now, if you go back and study it, Genesis chapter 4, where Cain is mentioned, he and his brother come to worship the living God. One comes with the best fruit he can come up with, the works of his own hands, and the other comes with a blood sacrifice. Now, in 19th century Germany, they said, well, the difference between the two sacrifices, and this was liberal apostate unbelievers that sadly many seminaries today teach, they said that one came with his best and Cain came with his less than best. You don't know that for one skinny second. How do we know that one came on the basis of blood and the other came on the basis of works? Because one of what God had revealed and two, the divine commentary we find in the New Testament. Why did God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's? Because one came according to the revealed will of God, according to the revelation of God. The other came according to human reason. Now in Hebrews 11 verse 4 it says, he came on the basis of faith. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. And of course the Bible teaches in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin. Now where do you get faith? You get faith in the same place everyone has ever gotten faith through the word of God. Now, even before the first verse was ever written down by Moses, God still spoke through visions, dreams, different revelations. And he had spoken to the hearts of Adam and Eve. What did they do? They brought fig leaf religion to a holy God. They're in shame. They're in sin. So by the works of their own hands, they create fig leaves to cover their sin. And God steps in and kills 
animals, the first death in all of you, in the whole universe. And he kills animals and he clothes them with skins. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so God had revealed how he is to be approached. And so you read all the way through the Old Testament, page after page, Noah comes off the ark, and what does he do? Blood sacrifice. There's the great Passover. There's Abraham on top of Mount Moriah. Everywhere you cut the Old Testament, it bleeds. Why? Because sin deserves death. Therefore, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And one came on the basis of what God had revealed to that point, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. The other came on the basis of human reason. On top of that, you say, are you sure he knew all that? Absolutely. Let me give you two verses to jot down and think about. One is Luke 11.51. Luke 11.51. Jesus is dealing with the uh, religious leadership in, of his day, and he associates them with those who killed the prophets, with those who shed the blood of righteous men from Abel, to Zechariah. What does that tell you? It tells you something you don't know in the Old Testament that Jesus gives us by divine revelation that Abel was a prophet. You say, why is that important? Jot down this verse, Acts 10, 43. There Peter said, all the prophets, that includes Abel, all the prophets preach Jesus. So Abel's offering was a picture, it was a prophecy of what was to come. Now, the Bible is a, an amazing book, and God had made it very, very clear. But you see, an apostate in our day will deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They'll say, well, Jesus was a martyr for a cause. There are things we can learn from his life, from the Sermon on the Mount. But they deny the blood atonement, the substitutionary death of Jesus is the only way to get into heaven. Look, there are some 10,000 religions in the world, but there is really only two. That which is true and that which is false. That that comes God's way, and that which comes man's way. The way of Cain, it perverts the gospel. But look at the second picture he gives, Balaam, and he prostitutes the gospel. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, these apostates, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. The King James says they ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. The Net Bible says because of greed, they have abandoned themselves to Balaam's heir. Now, if you know anything about Balaam, you might want to go home and read Numbers 22 through 25 and Numbers 31. Those three chapters will put it all together for you. Here is a man who could speak truth at times. And many times that's what phony preachers do. They speak truth and that's why they can slip in unaware and you think they're okay. But he served for money. He sold out for money. And so in describing him in 2 Peter 2, Peter said, forsaking the way, the right way, they, these apostates, have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And that's exactly what a phony minister does. He's in the ministry for the money. They prostitute the gospel. But he also mentions Korah. And what does Korah do? He prohibits the gospel. Read further into verse 11. Woe to them. They've gone the way of Cain. They've rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now you might want to write over Korah's name, Numbers 16. Numbers 16. He is illustrating Korah as an unbelieving apostate, like apostates today. And uh, if you remember, speaking of the coming Messiah in Deuteronomy uh, 18 and verse 15, Moses said this, the Lord your God 
will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. So Moses, we're told, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said this. And so in the New Testament, they'll say, is he the prophet to come? What are they talking about? Deuteronomy 18, 15. When Peter stands up on Pentecost and says he is the prophet, he's speaking of Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. And so here is this man, Korah, who rebelled against both God's prophet, Moses, and God's priest. He despised that there was a message that came from someone else other than himself. And he despised the fact that there was a ministry that had been entrusted to Aaron that he couldn't enter into. And so what does he do? He gets his godless gang and he tries to get them to go against Moses. And God takes them out. He knew the truth, but he rejected the truth. And so today he is in hell like Cain is in hell who is of the evil one the New Testament teaches, and as his Balaam is in hell. And so God can say, woe to him. Now he's drawing a portrait of an apostate because he wants us to know what can happen in good churches. Now if that were not enough, he then fills in the portrait by giving us five word pictures, five illustrations of the earth, the air, the trees, the sea, and the starry heavens. Look at verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs. And your love feast. By the way, we're going to have a love feast this afternoon. Now, we're not going to couple it with the communion services they did in the first century. But they had love feasts. They got together for a big potluck. But this is not a potluck. We're providing the food. You just bring your favorite dessert, if you will. But but we're going to have a big time. And uh, if you don't like to eat and be with God's people, there's something wrong with you. But in any case, they're hidden, like hidden reefs. Look, if, if you're driving a boat. I had owned a boat once, you know, and when I bought it, a guy in our church said the best day is the day you buy it and the day you sell it, and he was right. Man, I was in a full sweat out there the whole time, and I'd hit these sandbars, and I didn't know what was hidden. I didn't know that river. It was more fun for me to go out in a boat with Jerry because he knew the river, and I just had to sit there and relax. <laughs> Here's my point. They're like hidden reefs. They're there unsuspecting, And they are ready. They're like a blemish, some translations say. They're ready to sink the gospel ship. That's what they're about. They're dangerous. Not only are they dangerous, they're deceptive. They're like clouds without water carried along by winds. You know, in this part of the world, it's a dry place. Oh, cloud. Rain is coming. Praise God. But it's an empty cloud. And that's the way some of these people are. They can't really satisfy your spiritual thirst because they have no truth. Further, they're autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. You know, Christians are often compared to trees who bear fruit. And so Harry describes these false teachers who are like trees, like autumn trees without fruit. They're lifeless, they're doubly dead, and that they are dead not only in their appearance, but in their inner state, they are dead on the inside. They're like wandering stars. A wandering star just flashes across the sky with no direction, and their ultimate reservation notice is in the black darkness. They have a reservation in hell. So he's describing apostates on three levels. He's highlighting their past judgment, their present characteristics. Third, Jude describes the future judgment of apostates, the future judgment. He now gives us, in verse 14, another illustration of a man by the name of Enoch. I'm almost done. Stay with me. I know you think, oh, I just got a whole nother point. I'm almost done. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. 
By the way, the first prophecy given by God through a man about the return of Jesus was through this individual, Enoch. And if you read Genesis chapter 5, the only place that Enoch is mentioned other than uh, here in these few places in the New Testament, you'll not find that prophecy. You won't find it there. How did Jude know? Again, by divine revelation. Or maybe, again, it was a, an oral tradition that God put his stamp of approval on, and so he wrote it down in Scripture. Kind of like Peter describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. You don't know that Noah preached until you come to the New Testament. So what was his prophecy? Look at it. He's this Enoch who's in the seventh generation from Adam. Why does he say that? Because he wants to distinguish him from another Enoch that's one of Cain's sons. And notice to underscore the fulfillment of the prophecy, Jude uses what linguists call a prophetic past tense. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. He writes it as if it had already happened. That's how sure and certain it is. Isaiah does the same thing in the 53rd chapter. Now, what do we know about Enoch? Well, he had a son by the name of Methuselah. That means when it shall come, he shall die. Literally, it's a compound, huge Hebrew word. When it shall come, he shall die. And of course, the day Methuselah died, excuse me, the year Methuselah died, the flood came. So he had this child, and God told him specifically what to name the child. And you start thinking about the return of the Lord, and it kind of gets some priorities in order. And so from that day on, it says Enoch walked with God. And Enoch walked with God, and then the text says, and he was not, for God took him. Now, interestingly, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which Jude quotes, or excuse me, the writer of the Hebrews quotes, in Hebrews 11 and verse 5, you might want to put that in the margin, it says he was, um, Enoch walked with God and he was not found because God took him up. So God gives us a little divine commentary. You might think, well, it was implied there, but it's specifically stated in Hebrews 11 verse 5. What does that tell you? It tells you that after Enoch was gone, they looked for him. And one of these days, the church will be caught up and they'll look for us, (laughs) but they won't find us. And so here's this man who uh, walked with God and he's a picture of God's holy angels and those who will come back with him. And further in verse 15, when he comes back, he will execute judgment. Jesus will execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. (laughs) It's gonna happen, my friends. They can mock us now, but God is going to bring judgment. Now, don't get arrogant. He's not done yet. Verse 16, these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts, They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That brings us finally to a defense against apostasy, a defense against it. Now, if we stopped in verse 16, we might get discouraged. You say, well, this is terrible. What are we going to do about it? I want you to notice, beginning in verse 17, there's an exhortation to remember. There's an exhortation to remember. And so notice the very first word of verse 17. It's the word but. He's making a contrast. But, you beloved ought to remember the words which were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is not an option. This is a command. Remember, remember, remember. So the defense against false doctrine is sound doctrine. 
And he is going to speak here in a moment about how steadfast we are in Jesus Christ. And you need to remember it because when, it's things, when things appear to be falling apart, they're not. They're coming together. They're coming together for what God prophesied would happen at the very end of time. Paul's words are, don't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Remember the words. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words which were spoken beforehand, verse 18, that they were saying to you, in the last times there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. So don't be surprised by what's happening. God said it would happen. These are the ones, notice verse 19, who cause divisions, worldly-minded, the margin, it says merely natural. You know what a natural man is, right? Natural man is an unsaved man. He is devoid of the spirit. You know, in every church, there are people who cause divisions. They just want to come in, and they're like a thorn in your flesh as a pastor. And sometimes when they leave, I think, thank God, that's a blessed subtraction. And I'm being truthful. Because you see, some of these who cause divisions, it's only one of two things. They're either grossly out of fellowship with God, but more often than not, they are unbelievers. They are without the Spirit of God. They know all the right words, but they are spiritually dead, merely natural, worldly-minded. And so there's an exhortation to remember. We need to pay attention Secondly, there is an action to take in verses 20 and 21, but you, beloved, there's an action to take. You, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now, there's one main verb in the text, keep yourselves in the love of God. And there are three participles that get their force from that main verb that in English here, like most participles, end in I-N-G. Did you notice that? You might want to circle them. Because he's trying to help us to understand how to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, let me pause here for a moment. What does that mean? Understand, you can't do anything to make God love you more, not if you've been saved. And you can't do anything to make God love you any less. Because your lovability, Jesus taught in the high priestly prayer, is with your identity with him. And that's why Jesus can say the father loves his children as much as he loves his son. But because God loves you, he wants to change you, but he also wants us to stay within the sphere of God's love. That's the thought here. Remain in the sphere. Keep yourselves in the sphere of God's love. Look, if I'm in the sun, I can enjoy the warmth of it. But if I'm in the shade of a cold building, I'll shiver. And God wants us to experience the benefits of knowing him. It doesn't mean that he stops loving you, but remember, he's dealing with apostasy. And he's reminding us in these final days as things will get worse and worse and worse, make sure you are walking with God Almighty. It's like the prodigal son. The prodigal son went and rejected his father's provisions and went with slopping pigs. Did the father hate the son? No. He looked... He was waiting. He was wanting the son to come back. And that's how it is. It's not that God moves. It's we who are moved. And so we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. How do you do that? Again, there's three participles. First, building. Building yourselves up in the most holy faith. In other words, study the word of God. Not only are we to contend for the faith, but what good is it to contend for the faith if you don't build yourself up in the faith? People say, well, you know, they can't read the Bible anymore in schools, and we don't read it in our homes. They can't pray anymore in schools, and we don't pray in our homes. They can't put the Ten Commandments on the walls anymore, and we don't have them on our walls. 
We ought to do everything to feed on Holy Scripture. Secondly, praying. Paul will say, praying in the Holy Spirit, as Jude affirms here. In other words, there's a spirit of helplessness. It's not, well, I've got this great knowledge, and that therefore fixes me to walk steadily with God. No, that knowledge is useless if I'm not broken, if I'm not praying in dependence upon the Lord. And then, so he's, again, he's describing, and then notice waiting, waiting. We ought to be waiting. We just read in the pastoral prayer this morning that there's a reward for those who long for his appearing. Why? Because it changes the way you live. And now, finally, just to help us to understand and have perspective, he wants us to have compassion. He says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. So again, he's describing what our attitude, you know, we can be real mad at all these liberals and all the influences that they are making on innocent people. Now look, you can't do anything with an apostate. If he's a true apostate, you can't do anything for him. Now, God ultimately knows the heart, and some people I thought who were apostate were not. But most of the people I thought were apostate were indeed apostate. And so when Paul, but he's an apostle, I understand Galatians 1 He said, if someone comes preaching a different gospel other than the one that I have delivered, he is to be anathema. It's a Greek word that means damned to hell. Hmm. He said that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Why was he so strong? Because of the damage, the eternal damage they did. But he recognizes that not everyone who sits under an apostate is an apostate himself. So he says, save others. Well, first he says, have mercy on some who are doubting. So there are some who are just kind of doubting. Have compassion. Care about them. Pray for them. Do everything you can. And then there are some where you have to be a little more dramatic, a little more forward. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. You're a little more direct with them because they're headed towards the eternal fire of judgment. Snatching them out of the fire Have mercy on some who are doubting, save others. Hey, by the way, that's how John Wesley described himself. Do you remember? He came to Savannah. Have you ever been to that little square in Savannah? I don't know what it's called, but I sat there one afternoon, had a chance to witness to a couple people while my wife was in a store. And and here's his statue of John Wesley. He comes to Savannah, Georgia to convert the Indians. But he's lost. He's trapped in religion. He gets on the boat. To go back to England, he realizes as he meets Moravian believers that he's not a true believer. In the providences of God, he goes into Aldersgate Chapel there in London. He listens to Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans where Luther shares his testimony. And he says, my heart was strangely warmed. And he compares himself. He said from Amos 4.11, I was like a firebrand snatched from the fire. That's what we need to do for some. We need to snatch them from the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What does that mean? While you are to have compassion on some who are doubting, while you are to be more compulsive with those who are caught up in a more substantial way, you are to come with a deep sense of caution, hating the garment that they wear. What does that mean? Well, a man's garment was associated with his persons, just like a, a team shirt represents the team you play for. And some people's garments, so to speak, are polluted by their flesh, by their sinful ways. 
And he's just saying, look, when you go to rescue some of these people, watch yourself. Paul gives similar admonitions in Galatians 6 1. Watch yourself. In 1978, 513 of us were commissioned as missionaries in the United States and around the world. And I know for a fact, I knew personally dozens of those people who now didn't pay attention to what Jude is saying, especially when dealing with members of the opposite sex. Men trying to evangelize a woman, a woman trying to evangelize a man, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but you should be cautious, especially if the person is deeply trapped in sin. And so sadly, so many of these people are no longer in the ministry. Happy is the person who knows how to be a friend of sinners like Jesus, but also knows how to keep himself holy and unspotted of the sins of this world. So he completes with a note of victory. Now to him who is able to keep you from sinning, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. And all God's people said. Now, Father, this is your word, not just to the people in Jude's day, but to the people of Community Bible Church. On this, the 40th anniversary of this church, may we have ears to heed the truth that is here, We know that many major denominations, seminaries, Bible colleges, and local churches did not pay attention to this little book, maybe one of the most ignored books in all the New Testament. They did not pay attention. So today they are so far away from the truth, and they are apostates. God, with a deep sense of humility in our hearts, we ask your protection over this fellowship that until Jesus comes, we would be faithful to his word. I pray today for someone who is listening, who maybe they've been exposed time and time and time again to the truth of the gospel, but they've never responded, maybe intellectually, but never with the heart unto salvation. Help them to know that they don't have forever, that to reject the truth is ultimately to set them up to believe a lie. Help some dear person, some teenager, maybe some child, maybe some adult, maybe some old person listening in some hospital, maybe some prisoner listening in a jail to cry out, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me by your grace, by your blood, I'll not be ashamed of you. And I will spend the rest of my life living for you. Father, may we have compassion on those who are doubting, to those who are caught up in wrong doctrine. May we snatch them from the fire. May we be known for what Jude commands us to do. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As we close, every word that Pastor Carl preached today was from the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Have you ever wondered how you can prove the Bible to be true? 
Well, in Dr. Brogy's book, How to Prove the Bible is True, Pastor Carl examines five crucial evidences that prove that the Bible is the Word of God and will share how you can definitively and accurately convey these truths to others. With a donation of any amount, you can receive a copy of How to Prove the Bible is True today. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 or visit searchthescriptures.org to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.